Okay, well, if you have your Bibles, we are in Galatians chapter 5 again. And we are almost finishing it up uh, today. We're going to leave that last verse 26. We're going to leave it for next week because I think it belongs in chapter 6. And I'll tell you as to why I think that later, but, or, or next week. But we're going to take just the last section, uh, verses 16 through 25 here today. And this is such an important portion of the book of Galatians because what we're really talking about here, what Paul's teaching us is this is where the rubber meets the road. He's taught us what the gospel is and what it is not, the implications of the gospel for our life, but here's what it's really to look and feel like. And so I really feel like this is a, a critical moment in this study over the book of Galatians. Because you and I, we want to live the Christian life. We don't want to just say we're living the Christian life. Right? We want to know that we are truly living in this Christian freedom that we've just been learning about. So what does it look like? What does it feel like? I want to be able to identify it so that I can know when it's present in how I'm living, right? So we've learned about Christian freedom uh, in, in a couple of ways last week. We learned what it's not. Number one, we've, we've learned that it's not legalism. And number two, we've learned that it's also, it's not a license to sin either. So it's not legalism. So what Paul's been teaching us is we're not trying to live in such a way that would fulfill the law. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus, he was perfect for us. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And when we put our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He is the all-sufficient sacrifice. And so if Jesus is my righteousness, and Jesus is my atonement, legalism is not required in this life. We, so the, a, free, a life that has freedom in Christ is not a legalistic one. But it's also not a license to sin. When we live in the freedom of Christ, it doesn't mean like, well, I guess I can just be all willy-nilly. I can just live however I want and do whatever I want. No, Paul says in verse 13 that we read last week, we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, Jesus didn't die so I could sin a whole bunch more, right? That's not why he died for us. So Christian, the, the Christian life, it's not legalism. It's not a license to sin. So what is it? If it's neither of those two things, what is it? Well, I think the best word to describe what, I'm, what we're learning about and what I'm going to attempt to describe today is that the Christian life is a struggle. We live in this tension of legalism and, and uh, you know, thinking I have a license to sin. It, it's, there's, a, there's a balance in here that I need to find, and, and it's a struggle to find that balance. But we're going we're gonna to dive into this text, and I think this particular passage is really helpful in defining what this life looks like if it's neither of those two things. So we have an opportunity to reflect on our own life and to see, am I truly living in this Christian freedom that I'm called to live in? So everybody in here, you're... I named the church The Journey because we're all on a journey. Every single one of us, you're on some sort of journey of faith. That's why you showed up here today. And in that journey of faith, all of you are dealing with all sorts of different circumstances and scenarios. You have different obstacles. You're in different seasons of life, different phases of life. And no matter where you're at on that journey, you're, you're on the spectrum of struggle. 
No matter where you're at, how long you've been a Christian, what's happening in your life right now, or what your childhood was like, regardless of all of those unique individual circumstances that all of us have in here, we all have this common ground in that we're going to struggle wherever we're at. And so you got to know what the struggle is about and why it's there and how to struggle well, or this life as a Christian can feel aimless uh, in a hurry, right? And so that's, that's what we're trying to avoid. So if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to start at verse 16, just take through 18 to get us started. Here's what that struggle is and how Paul describes it. Verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, so again, regardless of where you're at on that journey of faith, you're in that struggle that he just talked about. You're in this struggle of an old self with old desires and a new self in Christ with new desires. You guys, um, uh, you, you like some of the old school cartoons? Do you miss the old, old school cartoons? Like, I, I grew up with a really healthy diet of, and my dad, like, I don't, I guess he just took the opportunity to re- relive all of the cartoons that he loved <laughs> in my childhood, and, and like, he would have me watch all of those cartoons, and so in my day, he would buy all the really old cartoons on VHS, and then we would watch all the Hanna-Barbera cartoons, and so some of my favorite cartoons growing up are Warner Brothers, you know, you got, you got Tom and Jerry, obviously, right, but you got, I, I used to love Droopy, Droopy's one of my all-time favorites, and do you guys remember Quick's Draw McGraw? <laughs> like, that was one of my, I loved Quick, Huckleberry Hound, all those guys. You know, there's something I remember, though, taking place, regardless of which one of those cartoons you grew up watching, there's a shtick that happens almost in every single one of those cartoons that's exactly the same. There's a moment in which one of these main characters is thinking about doing something bad, right? They're in some sort of ethical dilemma. And what happens? poof, on their right shoulder, this angelic version of themselves starts talking sense into them. No, don't, don't do that, right? No, that's not what you want to do. And then, poof, the, the devil version of themselves, and he's always smoking a cigar, right? <laughs> like, ah, don't listen to that guy, right? And, and, and he's back and forth, you're listening to, the, the main character's listening to both arguments, and and then, you know, inevitably, every single time, they flick the good guy off their shoulder. I'm going to go do what the bad guy has to say. And then by the end of the show or the end of the cartoon, they come to their senses, and the angelic version of themselves takes over. They do the right thing. You know, that, that shtick, right, it, it resonates with us because every single one of us in here knows what it's like to be caught in a moral dilemma. Every single one of us in here knows what it's like to be caught in a situation in which you really want to do the bad thing but you know it's bad and you shouldn't do it. So you're hesitant and you're thinking about it and you're listening to the good part of you. So that's not really how it's going down in the Bible. <laughs> so when you're reading scripture, that's not how scripture describes this war that's taking place in our hearts and minds. Here's how the Bible describes it. When we're a believer, this is the scenario, the common ground all of us are in. Every single one of us in here had a natural birth, right? We're in the flesh. 
And in that natural birth, we are born in such a way that we are sinners at birth. You come into the world guilty. And no one has to teach you how to sin. That's natural. You can do that without even thinking about it. And if you've had a kid, you know that's true. <laughs> you know that's true. You've seen it happen in your own kids' lives. You didn't have to teach them to be a little jerk. That's natural. <laughs> you didn't have to teach them to be selfish. That's natural. We're born under sin. We're born under what the Bible describes as the curse of Adam. That original sin that led to this fallen and broken world. And so because we are sinful at birth, we sin. We want to do that. Our desire is to sin. Our inclination is to sin. But when we become a Christian, what has happened, and this is how the Bible describes that, we experience a new birth or a rebirth. This birth is not in the flesh. This is a spiritual birth. This is how Jesus would describe it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for example. We have to be born again. And so in that rebirth, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we are given new inclinations, new desires. And so it results in this situation in which we have a struggle between the, our old desires and our new desires. This is how the New Testament describes it. Now here's a homework text for you to write down in your devotional time. I have two of them for you today. Here's your first one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 45 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 58. That'll complement what I'm teaching. That's, I, I, sometimes I just, when I teach and I, I preach, I'm just summarizing what's in the Bible somewhere else. I'm just not reading it to you. I'm just telling you about it. You can go fact check me there. So Paul's framing it in this way in Galatians once again, that we are in this natural flesh struggle against our supernatural spiritual uh, existence struggle. And so in our old self, our natural self, in the flesh, we seek to gratify the desires of the flesh. We're self-indulgent. We're self-centered. We seek our own glory. That part of you is not going to die. This, uh, that part of you is not going to go away uh, this side of heaven. It's not going to go away until you die. So you're going to battle that old self until you're on the other side. So the new self, though, this, that's a result of the spiritual birth. It has new desires, and those are the desires of the Spirit. Those are God-centered. Those are selfless desires. Those are, that's a desire to glorify God and not yourself. And so Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the common ground each and every one of us has here with one another today. Again, you're in a different phase of life than the people around you. You're in a different circumstance, different scenario. You've got different obstacles, but that's the common ground. You're in that struggle. Wherever you're at in that journey, that's your struggle right there, as described by Paul in Galatians. Whether you've been, whether you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, 10 years, or, or, or 100 years, you are in that struggle. Do you feel that tension, that struggle? Can you identify it in your life right now? Isn't it almost annoying sometimes? I mean, let's be honest. 
don't you wish you could do some of the bad, at times, don't you wish you could do some of those bad things and not feel bad about it? Have you ever, you ever been stressed out or annoyed by that? Like, man, wouldn't this be so much easier if I just didn't care about that being bad? <laughs> Does that make sense? Please tell me I'm not the only one in here. But you know, like, isn't it annoying? I'm, I'm not talking about the regret you feel having got caught for doing something wrong. Every, everybody can experience that. I'm not talking about the regret that you feel when you're faced with the consequences of a bad decision. Everybody has to deal with that. I'm talking about the regret that you feel and the conviction you feel and you experience when you know you've done something that is not pleasing to God. I know early in my Christian walk, I've almost looked, I, I almost looked at that reality in my life and thought, man, it's kind of annoying. I wish I didn't have that battle because I see other people in this world that are doing bad things, and they're not in that internal struggle that I feel like I'm in right now. And have you ever talked to someone, maybe a new believer, and, and maybe you've experienced this in your life too, like before you were a Christian, there were some sins in your life that you could commit, and it didn't bother you at all. It didn't bother you whatsoever. I've talked to Christians who, you know, they're, they're new in their faith, and so they want to sit down with the pastor, and they want to talk about this, and they'll say things to me like, man, I used to be able to do this sort of thing in my life, and I didn't even think about it. It was just everyday life, and it was fun, and, and I, I, I didn't have any regret whatsoever. But now, when I do those same things, it really bothers me. It upsets me. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's awkward when I'm involved in those things. And so, when we become a Christian, we know we don't become perfect just like that, right? None of us has, have, has had that experience. We have these old sins in our life that when we become a Christian, it isn't that all of that sin ceases to exist all of a sudden. It's that when we involve ourselves in those sins that we've made, maybe uh, previously have been comfortable with, now we're uncomfortable with that same sin. It eats away at us. We can, we can feel this struggle inside of our lives that says, this is not what I'm supposed to do. And it, and it gnaws at us. And, you know, I, I always like to tell a, a new believer especially, don't be annoyed by that. Be eternally grateful for that. That is, that is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what you may at first view as annoying because you're tired of dealing with the guilt and the shame that comes along with sin in your life, that's Holy Spirit-filled conviction in your life. You should be grateful that God has done a work in your life in such a way that you can identify that and that you can do something about that and that you are being drawn to, to repentance before God. This isn't something that you're comfortable with. You're not okay with that lifestyle anymore. And so this is, this is what the process feels like when we start to live in that Christian freedom. The Holy Spirit starts in a, a work in our life when we become a believer that the Holy Spirit will bring to completion one day. And it's going to feel like one degree of holiness to the next. But as we battle in that battle for holiness, some days it's going to feel like we're taking two steps back, right? Because our old self is still trying to, to gratify the desires that we were born with. And so we have to live in the Spirit then and, and depend upon God to battle against those sinful desires. So, 
you know, just like those old, car- old cartoons, some days are just going to feel like you're giving in to the devilish version of yourself, right? You're giving in to the, to the flesh desires. Sometimes it just feels like the flesh self is winning that battle. And so this passage helps us to understand how to identify that and what to do about it. I mean, how, how are we going to win this struggle? How, how do we exist in it in such a way that we struggle well? Well, I don't want to lead you down to a works-based way of thinking today. That would be counterproductive and against everything that Paul's been teaching us up to this point. As a matter of fact, I want to do just the opposite. I want to lead you to hope and confidence in the Holy Spirit and the work that he is doing in your life if you are a believer here today. Because no amount of self-effort is going to get long-lasting results in your life. No amount of self-help is going to change your life. No amount of behavior modification, that's legalism. That's, that's not ultimately going to do it. Like as you try to stop sinning and you're depending on yourself to do that, a lot of those fixes that we put in place in our life are just duct tape type fixes. Duct tape, you can fix almost anything temporarily with duct tape. But it's just not going to last. And so here's what happens a lot of times. People will, people will put forth all this effort, and they're just wrapping a lot of duct tape around this problem in their life. And then when that duct, duct tape eventually gives way and rips in half, right? It just doesn't last forever. We think, oh, no, I'm hopeless. Oh, no, I must not really be a believer. Oh, no, I don't know how to salvage this. So Paul's not leading us to that type of thinking. He's leading us to hope in the Holy Spirit. We are talking about spirit-powered change in our life, not willpower change in our life. When we're talking about walking in the Spirit, as Paul says, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When, When we're talking about walking in the Spirit, we're not talking about some mystic, self-delusional uh, experience that you have to muster up, like sprinkling God magic in your life, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about walking by the Spirit in that we are putting our confidence for change in, in the Spirit. We're hoping that the Spirit will do this work. We are hoping in the promises of God that He's given to us in His Word that the Spirit has indwelled our hearts and minds in such a way that a work is taking place that will cause permanent change to happen. And and I'm a work in progress, and I work alongside and walk alongside, keeping in step with the Spirit as that happens, trusting in God. Here's your second homework text. Again, I'm, I'm summarizing so much of what Paul says in other books of the Bible that I want you to go read them this week. Just go to Romans chapter 8 and read the whole thing, 1 through 39, and it will bring a lot of clarity to this conversation, to this battle that you and I are in right now. And it feels like a battle every minute of every day at times between good and bad in our hearts and minds. But in Romans 8 chapter 5, I'll I'll just pluck this verse out at least, but I want you to go read it in context later. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what have you been setting your mind on lately? 
when Paul frames it like this, what are you setting your mind on right now? Are you setting your mind on things of the flesh or things of the spirit? You're right. We, we can even collectively come to church together, but waste our time. You can sit there and waste your time here because your mind is set on things of the flesh the entire time we're gathered. Are you, are you coming? The purpose of coming here is to set our mind on the things of the spirit. And so that's why we present you with all of this truth in all of these different ways, because we're trying to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Because when you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you're going to feel like you're winning that internal battle. That day is going to feel like a win for you. So Paul is teaching us about this in terms we can understand and he gets real practical right here towards the end of chapter 5. He's just going to make a list. You got to set your mind on the right things. If you want to if you want to start to see this progress in your life, if you want to keep in step with the spirit, think about the things that are of the spirit. We have the works of the flesh and we have the fruit of the spirit. So let's look at the list of the works of the flesh. It's the longer list if you've read ahead but it's not an exhaustive list. Follow with me in 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not an exhaustive list. He's like, and I could go on. This is just off the top of my head. These are the really common ones. So you can break this, this uh, list into, well, a lot of commentators will break it into four, uh, four categories. The first one's really obvious. There's the sexual sin category. No surprise here. No surprise here whatsoever. The number one thing that Jesus harped on more than anything else is sexual immorality. You'll hear him say that word, that, that term, sexual immorality, which is one word in the Greek, porneia. It's where we get our word porn. That is something Jesus said and taught against over and over and over again. So it's no surprise whatsoever that when you get into the epistles written by the apostles, they talk about sexual immorality a lot. And so the definition in the Greek of sexual immorality, this is their understanding. Any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, that is a work of the flesh. That's a no-doubter. That's an uncontested uh, no-doubter. That's what that meant when they used that word in the Greek in their day. And nothing's changed. The second word there is Impurity, akatharsia, I looked up all of these Greek words, and I'm going to say them like I know how to pronounce them today to really try to impress you. But that word, I, I wanted to look up every single word to really get to the root of what it meant. So when you see a word in the English, you've got to know it wasn't written in English. And so you've got to go look up these words in Greek and then look how that word is used in the Greek. And then you've got to look at how that word's used in the Greek in their day to get a definition. And so when you look up Akatharsia or impurity, that's a word they use to describe any unnatural sexual practice or any unnatural sexual relationship. Sensuality, aselgia, that would have been uh, uncontrolled sexuality, but in a way that uh, describes it as something that is filthy. You ever, you ever, uh, 
you know, see something on TV and you're like, ah, that's filthy. Or your mom comes in there, that's filthy, turn that off. Like, that's the word, that's the Greek word she would have used in that situation had they had TV back then, right? So if you are setting your mind on sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, if, your mind, if you let your mind linger there, you're going to feel like you're losing that internal battle. You're going to feel weak spiritually. You're going to feel strong in the flesh. The Spirit would never lead you to set your mind on those things, according to Scripture. The second category listed here are what we'll call religious sins. And there's just a couple of them, and, and the second one's questionable. I'll get to it in a moment. But the first one's idolatry. Idolatry, we're talking about image worship, worshiping of false gods and that sort of thing. And we can idolize a lot of things in our life, and we can, we can elevate things to a place where it should not be in our lives. But if you set your mind on that, it's going to feel like you're losing. The word sorcery is fascinating. So the word sorcery is pharmakeia. It's where we get our word. It's closely related to our word pharmacy. It's because it's a word that can describe medication or drugs. And so, uh, it, but it's in, in their day and in their world, right, uh, it could describe medications that a doctor uses, or it could be describing like, uh, you know, like what you would think of when you think of a witch doctor and sorcery and those sort of things, or, or maybe today's essential oils or something like that. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> pharmakeia could be a reference to drug abuse. So if you're, if you're setting your mind on idolatry, if you're elevating things to places in your life where they should not be elevated to, if you're, if you're setting your mind upon you know, drugs, if you want to put it that plainly, right? I mean, you're going to feel like you're losing that battle. You're going to feel like you're losing that battle internally. The third category is the big one. There's eight of them. And I'm just going to call this category relationship destroyers. The list is long. I looked up every word to uh, just to get a, a look at every definition. And some of these kind of overlap. Enmity, uh, when you look at that word in the Greek, you're thinking like selfish ambition, uh, which leads to butting heads with other people. Strife, if you're just the type of person that's quarrelsome, or quarrelsome you know, really gratifies or scratches an itch in your life. Jealousy, coveting, right? Fits of anger, that wrath that you feel, unjust wrath uncontrolled wrath. Rivalries. It's almost the same as the word strife. They're very, very closely related, but you think of being quarrelsome in, in the sense that you love to be the one who starts the argument, and you love to be the one who ends the argument. <laughs> you want to, it's a competition. You're contentious in that. And then two really closely related words again, dissensions and divisions. Dissensions, there's a type of person that really just is so satisfied in just dividing people any way, shape, or form. They just love seeing divisions. When you set your mind on just dividing people rather than uniting people, that's a work of the flesh. We naturally want to do that. Divisions, that's also a Greek word that can be used for heresy. So you think of dividing people heretically. That's a work of the flesh. Then envy. You know, if you fight these feelings of, you know, you look at what other people have and and, and you, you think that you deserve to have what they have more than they deserve to have what they have, and so you envy them. 
Those are all relationship destroyers. And when you give in to all of these thoughts, these thoughts that'll, that'll just naturally occur in your heart and mind, if you let your mind linger there and you set your mind on those things, you're going to feel like you're losing that internal struggle between the old and the new. And then that last category, there's two words left. One really jumped off the page at you, but it's not what you think. I'll just call this category the self-destructive behavior category. There's two words, drunkenness and orgies, which in our mind and in our language mean two different things. That may go together, but they are two different things going on. But in the Greek and in their day, these two words work together to say one thing. Think of it like this, drunken carousing. That would be a better way to translate this into a way that we could understand it like how they did. Drunken carousing, like the kind of obvious uh, self-destructive behavior that is not sober-minded in any way. You're just uh, out of control in how you're interacting with the word, with no, world with no care as to how you affect other people around you. It's just all about doing whatever feels good in the moment. That's what those two words would work together to communicate in their day. That type of activity, allowing yourself to exist there, is self-destructive behavior. And it's not anything that the Spirit would ever lead you to do. It's setting your mind on the things of the flesh. And then listen to what he says in 21. Did you catch that? Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, let me, let me read to you. Uh, he said, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, don't make the mistake of reading that verse and thinking that Paul is saying a Christian can lose their salvation. Don't make that mistake. If you plucked verse 21 out of context and forgot everything that he's been teaching us to this point, you might be able to use it to say that because if you pluck any verse out of the Bible and hold it by itself, you can make the Bible say anything you want. And people do it all the time, especially in our culture. But if you leave it within its context, you know that Paul is not creating a list of new laws that we have to live up to or else. That would be legalism again. That would be back to square one again, right? Jesus died for all of our sins. He's the all-sufficient sacrifice, or he's not. He either is or he isn't. And so not a single one of us here can get through that list that we just studied, and we get through it unscathed. Every single one of us, if we really look and examine this list from these relationship destroyers to, to self-destructive behavior to the religious sins, uh, the sexual sins, all of that behavior listed there, none of us gets through that list and, and, and not feel convicted about something in our life right now. As a matter of fact, if you do get through that list and you don't feel any conviction, you're the one that should be worried about your salvation. You go around saying you're without sin, you're a liar. That's what John tells us in 1 John, right? Each and every one of us gets through that list and we, we identify areas in our life where our old self is winning the battle. Or it feels like it. What Paul is saying here is if you live in such a way in which these sinful patterns can exist in your life and you don't feel the guilt and shame and conviction to ever do anything about it, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because there's not a, a work of the Holy Spirit taking place in your life. Because you're not obedient to the Spirit. 
This is what I mean when I say, like, when you have that struggle, don't think it's annoying. Be eternally grateful for that struggle that's going on in your heart and mind right now. That's God doing a work in your life. It's a struggle. There's tension there. It's exhausting at times. But boy, I'm sure glad it's going on. So Paul's not making a new checklist here for us so that we can be legalistic all over again, right? Because if he did, he would contradict when he said uh, Christ died for no purpose, right? Or contradict the argument in chapter 2 when he gets to the point in which he says, like, hey, if we've got to add a work of the law to be saved, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's not making a new checklist here. We've got to leave it in context. So Paul made this list of sins to represent that lifestyle that battles against walking in the Spirit. We want to walk in the Spirit, and that's not guesswork, right? We, we have a list to know what walking in the Spirit means as well. Follow along with me in 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, when he says, against such things there are no law, I think it's important to, to, to point out there that, right, the Old Testament law has been fulfilled, but the morality of the law still applies, right? The reason, he's mentioning all these good things of the Spirit. There's no laws against that stuff because that's the good stuff, right? These are the, this is the way that we should be living. This is not prohibited in the law, right? The morality of the law still is in effect, but the law has been fulfilled, and we are accepted to God through Christ and his fulfillment of the law. But as I walk in the Spirit, I don't just throw the morality of the law out the window, right? I don't have that license to sin that we talked about. But rather, I want to keep in step with the things that are important to the Spirit. I want to be in tune to what's important to the Spirit and live in that way. And the Spirit has informed us of how to walk in the Spirit. It's chapters and verses like chapter 5 of Galatians 22 through 25. We're going we're to walk in the Spirit in such a way that we're going to put the passions and the desires of the flesh to death. So what's that look like? Well, let's think about that list. It's showing love towards someone that in the flesh you hate. The Spirit is what empowers us to be able to do things like that. It's living with joy when you're surrounded by circumstances that bring you dread in the flesh. That's what walking in the Spirit is. It's, it's being empowered by the Spirit in such a way that you're displaying peace in your life when your flesh wants to panic, right? It's not that the feeling of panic isn't there. It's not that you don't want to panic. It's that by God's grace through the Spirit, you're able to experience that peace. It's choosing kindness when in the flesh you're just on edge. It's offering goodness towards someone that you just want to scream at. That's what walking in the Spirit is. It's faithfulness to God when you're surrounded by a crowd of people that in the flesh you want to appease. That's walking in the Spirit. 
It's gentleness towards someone that in the flesh you just want to crush, and you know you could. You could emotionally devastate them if you wanted to. But by God's grace and the Spirit, you show gentleness to them. It's living with self-control when on the inside you feel like you've lost it. There's no law against that activity because that's spirit-empowered activity. And those are, the, those are the things that we should pursue in the spirit. We should keep in step with the spirit in the sense that we know this is a life in the spirit and the spirit is doing a work in me and so I want to actively pursue this. So we're not talking about a, a passive, while we credit all of this holiness in our lives to the Holy Spirit, this is not a passive pursuit of holiness. By God's grace, we very actively keep in step with the Spirit. And of course, it's the power of the Spirit that enables us to do that. So I want to end this sermon today with a healthy exercise. Here's how I want us to uh, really practically start to do this right now in the moment. So again, each and every one of you is on that journey today. Each and every one of you has obstacles and circumstances and scenarios that you're in a battle with, right? We all have that common ground that no matter where you're at on that spectrum, you are battling. Here's a very practical way to do that, and I, and I want you to actively do it right now. I want you to scan through that list of the deeds of the flesh in 19 through 21 right now in, in your Bible. Just look through that list and identify the ones that convict you the most when you think about it. Right? Is, is it the fits of anger? Is it the hot temper that's got you? Is it the quarrelsome attitude? Is it the lust factor? What is it that in your life, like you feel like the flesh has a stronghold right now and is just getting the best of you? Identify which one of those works of the flesh that is hassling you the most right now. And when you've identified that, now go to the list of the fruit of the Spirit, verses 22 through 23. As you think about those works of the flesh that are plaguing you in your life, which one of these fruits, which one of these fruit would, would most actively minister to or put to death that work of the flesh? And why? Think through why that specific fruit of the Spirit would do that. And then here's what you do. You go to God in prayer and you actively pray for that fruit in your life, to bear that fruit in your life in such a way that it would put those specific deeds to death. Now remember, that's not an exhaustive list of deeds of the flesh. There are many other deeds of the flesh that may be plaguing you and your soul right now. But are you actively keeping in step with the Spirit in such a way that you are praying against it? That you are you're praying for that love or that joy that would put that, the, that work of the flesh to death in your life? Or are you just accepting it? Well, a Christian isn't going to accept it. It's too uncomfortable. It's, it's, you're tired of the guilt and the shame. You want to do something about it. The, the Spirit inspires you and convicts you and works in you in such a way that you want to pray about it. You want to actively pursue the heart of God and pursue the power of God to put that to death in your life. And so I want to encourage you to pray specifically in that way as we go into a time of communion. Because Jesus didn't die so you could sin more. Right? He didn't, he didn't die so you could be overly legalistic. He died 
And when he, when he rose again and ascended into heaven, he promised his followers, I'm going to send you a helper, the paraclete, right? The Holy Spirit, I'm going to send you a helper that you can work alongside, that's going to do a work in your heart and mind. It's going to give you life, spiritual life, and then it's going to empower you to live this life that I've called you to live. Now we can tap into that power through prayer. And so think about that as you contemplate what made this possible in a time of communion. That is the gospel. So let's pray, and then we'll take communion together simultaneously. Lord, thank you for teaching us how to struggle well. Thank you for informing us, Lord, of what this looks like and feels like. There are people here today that have come in here completely defeated. There are people that chose not to come to church today because they're so so ashamed and so frustrated with the sin that's going on in their life. They couldn't even muster the strength to get out of bed and come together and, and, and worship together today. They feel like they're not even worthy. The truth of it, Lord, is we're not worthy. Lord, we live in Christian freedom. We're accepted and loved by you because of you. So, Lord, I pray that for the people in here that are struggling, Lord, that today would be a time that they were reminded by you, the Spirit, to pray for this life that they're living, to pray about this struggle and this tension in which we live, to not neglect prayer, but to never cease praying. And, Lord, I'm grateful for the the countless stories that I could rattle off as I look across this congregation of people who have struggled with sin mightily. Father, by your grace, I I know so many stories in this room that people who have just overcome, by your grace, through the Spirit, have just overcome great sins that devastated seasons of their life. But Lord, you didn't leave them. You stayed with them. You empowered them to put it to death. Father, help us to never forget how grateful we are for your work of grace in our lives like that, that we would never take it for granted. And so, Lord, as we walk into a time of communion, help us to think about such things that we could give you all of the glory and praise and honor, and it would result in our worship of you today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.